Friends, do you like getting new things in life? A new phone? A new car? A new dress? A new hairstyle? I know many people who own older versions of iPads and iPhones that they like getting the new versions every time they come out. Why? Because they're so much better, so they tell us. All of us seem to be hooked on desiring new things in life. Well, today I would like for us to talk about something new that God did at Christmas. Actually, today we are starting a new Christmas series entitled Christ Our Exodus. You may wonder this morning, why are we choosing this theme for a Christmas series? Well, to give you a perspective where we've been and where we're going, last week we finished a short series on the book of Exodus, and we looked at four major themes in that book, the God who saves, the God who accompanies, the God who makes a covenant, and the God who dwells with his people. Now, throughout that series, we claimed that all these themes in Exodus are crucial for us as Christians because, as it turns out, Israel kept failing to live out God's plan for them. Even though God provided for them in miraculous ways, their initial obedience faded away pretty quickly. Yet the Exodus events happened also as a foreshadowing of a new and better exodus. Because when we get to the New Testament, the life of Christ is presented to us in language and concepts that are very similar and are drawn out from Exodus. On the Mount of Transfiguration, just to give you an example, Jesus meets with Moses and Elijah, and they talk to him about his exodus, referring to the cross. Christ enacted for us a true exodus from slavery and death. Yet it's not only his life and death, but also his birth that is described in the New Testament in language that is reminiscent of the exodus. And that's why the title of our series at this Christmas season, Christ, Our Exodus. The first sermon in the series describes for us the birth of Christ as the dwelling of God among us. And that's the theme of, of this morning's message, Christ, the dwelling of God. I encourage you, invite you to open Scripture to the Gospel of John. We'll be reading from chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 14. If you have one of the Pew Bibles, if you have the Red Bible, you may find our passage on page 919. Or if you have a brown cover Bible in the Pew Bibles, you'll find the passage on page 750. I encourage all of you to open the Word of God. And let's hear his word proclaimed to us. John chapter 1, verse 1 to 14. The word of the Lord speaks to us in the following way this morning. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has not been made. In him was life, 
And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. This was the word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads in prayer to ask God for His Spirit this morning. Father, we thank You for this morning. We thank You for the privilege of rejoicing with You and rejoicing and praising Jesus Christ for His birth for us in Bethlehem. Now, Father, we pray that You would send Your Holy Spirit to illumine us, to illumine this word as we are going to hear it. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, the Gospel of John presents the beginning of the life of Christ very differently than all the other Gospels. In some sense, the birth narratives are completely missing from this Gospel. John doesn't tell us about Mary and Joseph. He doesn't tell us about the shepherds and the angels. He doesn't tell us about the Magi and, and Herod. Instead, John does something else. When he talks about the incarnation of the Word of God, he starts talking first about his existence prior to his birth. And we're told that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has not come into being. And the next time we, we see John talk about this word is in verse 14 in the passage we've read. And he talks about the incarnation. Now surprisingly, John does not even use the word birth for Jesus Christ. All we are told is that God became man, and the language used to describe this event is language that is taken from the book of Exodus. And that's why, as we will continue this passage this morning, and we will look at John's unique presentation of the incarnation of the Word of God, two points become apparent this morning. The coming of Christ into the world brings us a new dwelling. The coming of Christ into this world brings us a new dwelling. And the second point that John brings out is that the coming of Christ into the world brings us a new birth. The coming of Christ into the world brings us a new birth. Both of these points become very relevant for our season today and, and this month as we all expect to receive something new as a gift. 
Friends, in the coming of Christ, God himself gives us a new dwelling and a new birth. Let's look at each of them separately and specifically. Throughout our study in the book of Exodus, we noted that one of the purposes that God had for redeeming Israel from slavery was so that he might dwell with them. And the book of Exodus ends with a picture of the tabernacle as the dwelling place of God among his people. When the tabernacle was completed, we find out that God moved in with his people, and we are told that the glory of God filled the tabernacle. That's how Exodus, the book of Exodus, ends. God accomplished his plans. Yet if we read the rest of the Old Testament, we find out that Israel kept disobeying the Lord. It is against this backdrop that John presents the coming of Christ into the world as being another dwelling, a better dwelling, a new dwelling. John 1, 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Now, the word for dwelling, or for the word for made His dwelling among us, is not the typical word that you would have for building a building or for building an edifice. It is a very specific word that is usually used when someone puts up a tent and when someone constructs a tabernacle. It's not about building any building. It's specifically about building a tent. And it's interesting, why is it that when John talks about the incarnation of, of the Word of God, he says, he made up a tent, or he put up his tent among us. I wonder why. Before we give that answer, let's look at a second hint in this passage. After John says, and he, he put up his tent among us, then he said, and we saw his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father. Friends, by, by using both of these concepts, the concept of, a, of putting up a tent or a tabernacle, and then the concept of seeing the glory of God, by using those two concepts together, John is clearly, clearly echoing the language of Exodus. The language and the timing when the tabernacle was completed and the glory of the Lord filled the tent. In other words, by using these two concepts in describing the birth of Christ, John was saying that history is being reenacted. Only this time, God's dwelling is far, far superior to the first Exodus account. Unlike Exodus, where the people were asked to build a tent for God, this time, God doesn't ask him to build a tent. He does it himself. Unlike Exodus, where the tent was built from wood and fabric and other physical materials, now the dwelling of God is a person. Unlike Exodus, where the Word of God was inscribed on tablets of stone, in the New Testament, we are told that the Word became flesh. The new dwelling of God, which took place at Christmas, is now personal. Not a physical building, but a person. God became man. Now, this has some significant implications for us as Christians. Dear friends, if you're a Christian this morning, this means for us that 
in the New Testament, the presence of God is no longer tied to a physical place. If in the Old Testament, people went to the tabernacle to meet with God, or later they went to the temple to meet with God, in the New Testament, physical places no longer have any guarantee of the presence of God. Now, occasionally I meet with, with people, very well-intended Christians, very well-intended Christians, who talk about the physical building of the church as God's house or as a place that is somehow more holy than other public places. I also come from a religious background of Eastern Orthodoxy where the building of a church is very, very important to make sure that you worship God. But dear friends, when we look at the New Testament, nothing could be further from the truth. The New Testament gives us no indication whatsoever that there's any sacredness about religious buildings. In the New Testament, our access into the presence of God is not through sacred buildings, but through the person of Jesus Christ. And this has two practical applications for us, practical implications. If Christ takes up residence in our lives through a personal relationship with Him, then we Christians carry in our body the dwelling of God, the, twem the temple of God. And this is clearly spelled out for us in the New Testament, specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, where the Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? The Spirit that is in you, whom you have received from God? This means, dear friends, that if we're Christians, we no longer go to church to meet with God. But when we go to church, we bring God with us. Because in Christ... God came to dwell in us. And at Christmas, the very name of Jesus as the Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Friends, God wants to move in with us. He wants to move in our hearts. He wants to live with us in our homes. He wants to live with us in our marriages. He wants to be with us when we go to work, when we carry out our responsibilities as citizens of the city. The first emphasis is that God moves in with us. He's with us. But the emphasis on a personal indwelling of God may mislead some of us into individualistic applications. If God is now dwelling in us as individuals, I can see some people ask, then why worry about going to church? I'm so glad you asked. Here's the implication. Here's a second implication of the dwelling of God with us and among us. The dwelling of God in us and among us is not only individualistically, but also as a corporate experience. The temple of God is not only our individual bodies, but also it is the gathering of believers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, Paul says, Don't you know? that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Well, the emphasis here is that Paul is not saying you as an individual, 
but you, plural, as the gathering of Christians in Corinth, are the temple of God. That's why Paul rebuked the Corinthian church against the divisions that they were, they were experiencing among themselves. Because being divided in the gathering of saints meant that they were in danger of destroying the temple of God, which was their congregation, their gathering together. Friends, this means that in the New Testament, there is a proper way we can talk about meeting with God at church. It's just that it's not about the building, but about the people. There's nothing magical or sacred about the people because God now is present in the corporate gathering of the redeemed who gather in the name of Christ and who gather because of Christ and because of what they have done in their he has done in their lives. Dear friends, Christianity is personal, but it's not individualistic. When Christ dwells in us and among us, he makes us a new community of Christians living life together to become the temple of God. Yes, each of us are saved personally, but what we are saved into is a community. It is the temple of God. That's why in the New Testament, the regular gathering of the saints and their organic unity is absolutely essential for us and for our Christian lives. When Christ takes residence in us, we become God's temple corporately. And that's why, dear friends, we don't, we don't say we just go to church. We are the church, both when we gather and when we scatter. And all of this is possible only because Christ is a new dwelling of God who takes residence in us and among us. But friends, as good as this new dwelling sounds to us, Scripture does not want to give us an idealistic picture of the God's dwelling. Here's the reality. And it's from the passage we just read. John tells us that as beautiful as this news is, that Christ is the dwelling of God among us, the reality is that men did not react well to this event in human history. And rightly so. Have you ever had someone move in with you for a longer period of time? It might have been a stranger. might have been a foreign exchange student who came to live with you for a semester or for a year. Or perhaps you yourself have been one. It might be a, a very close friend who needs some help. Or it might be a family member, a member of your extended family, who for a period of time decided to, to move in with you. What is that experience like? What if that person, after moving in with you, would start telling you um, how, to, how to move things around the house and how to organize your, your living room and how to organize your kitchen? Ladies, can you imagine if this person started to move around all your, all your dishes and said, no, it's better to do it this way than this other way? What would you do to that person? you would kindly say, hello, this is my house. We don't like when people move in with us and they start directing our lives. When they start moving things around and telling us how to live our lives. But dear friends, 
I'm here this morning to tell you that when Christ moves in our hearts, when he takes residence in our lives, that's exactly what he does. That's exactly what he did with Israel in Exodus. He moved in with them and he told them, this is how I want you to live. No wonder that he got rejected time and again. Why? Because we don't like when other people move into our homes, move into our lives, and they start giving us new directions. That's just, just not the way protocol is in our society. But friends, that's what God experienced with Israel in Exodus. And notice what God says in Exodus 29. He says, They shall know that I am their Lord, the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. Israel failed to obey. They failed to allow God to be their God. They preferred instead to follow other gods. When we get to the New Testament, John tells us that nothing has changed since Exodus. Actually, three times in this passage, John tells us that God's plan to dwell among or with mankind, has not been received well. Three times in this passage. Look at verse 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In other words, the mission of Christ on earth will not be received joyfully and with open arms. Why? Because People will misunderstand it. People will misunderstand him. John continues this surprising reaction in verse 10. If you look in verse 10, he says, Though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And this is a second failure. Not only misunderstand him, but also misrecognize him. Yet these were not innocent blunders on the part of humanity. John continues and says that even God's special people, those whom he redeemed from Egypt, even they failed to get it. Look at verse 11. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Friends, this was the reaction of the majority of Israel. God's own people, the descendants of those he redeemed from Egypt, ended up rejecting Christ. And there's another illustration in the Gospel of Luke when Simeon met Mary and Joseph in the temple and he described the mission of Christ in this way. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Here's the puzzling thought. How can the child who is destined to be the glory of Israel also be the cause for the fall of many in Israel? How can he be the sign that will be spoken against if he was the Son of God? Friends, these passages make it very clear to us that for some people, the coming of Christ into the world is not a good news. Failing to understand him, failing to recognize him, failing to receive him means that he is going to cause many to fall. And this is why the natural descent of being an Israelite 
is no longer enough to be considered the child of God. John, in, 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 the, in, in chapter 8, verse 41 to 43, presents a dialogue between Jesus and, and other Jewish people. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one Father, God. That's what the Jewish people replied to Jesus. And Jesus says to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what am I saying? Dear friends, do we hear what Jesus is saying here? Even though the Israelites were, were God's chosen people and they carried the badge of being the people of God, their rejection of Christ proves they were not God's children. Otherwise, they would have loved Christ. Despite this grim picture of misunderstanding, despite this grim picture of non-recognition and rejection, the good news that John brings us is that in the coming of Christ, we can experience not only a new dwelling, a dwelling that is far better than the one in Exodus, but in the coming of Christ, we experience a new birth. In Exodus 4:22, God asked Moses to tell Pharaoh that Israel is God's son, his firstborn son. Actually, if we look in the Bible, the first time we see a reference for God's son is not in reference to Jesus. It's in reference to Israel. And that's in the, in the book of Exodus, chapter 4, verse 22. It first referred to Israel. However, as we have already seen, despite all the miracles, many of the Israelites failed to live as God's sons. Their natural descent was not strong enough. Worse, their natural descent as children of God did not enable them to receive the true Son of God, and for that reason they were doomed to destruction. But look at verse 12. Look at, look at the good news that we have. Yet to all those who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave them the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Friends, this is a new birth that Christ brings. In the New Testament, the children of God are no longer guaranteed through natural descent. Just because your mom or dad were Christians, dear friend, does not mean that you are a Christian. Just because someone is born of a Jewish descent does not make that person automatically a child of God. That's why in the New Covenant, it's so much more superior to the Old Covenant. God not only comes to us in a new dwelling in His Son, but He also brings us a new birth. And even though in the Old Testament, Israel was called God's Son, the promise of verse 12 in John 1 is for Israel as well. All those including from the nation of Israel, who do receive Him, will be born of God. The new birth is what makes us now children of God. This means that the true children of God, whether Jewish or not, are only those who make room for Christ in their hearts and are thus born of God. 
Friend, let me ask you this morning, have you experienced this new birth in your life? And if you did, do you see a difference in your life? Do you find a new nature aspiring for the things of God in a way that you have not done it before? My dear friend, if you find yourself this morning that your past was more characterized by misunderstanding Christ or by misrecognizing Christ or possibly by simply rejecting Him, it is not too late for you to turn around and receive Christ and experience His new birth. What does this mean more specifically? Here's what it means. It means that you, first of all, recognize your rebellion against God and that even your best behavior still falls short of God's standard of perfection. In light of that recognition, you repent of your sin and trust in the sacrifice of Christ to be credited to you before a holy God. And this act of repentance and faith enables God to give us a new birth. And thus we become children of God, true children of God. My friend, if you would like to know more about this new birth, please come and talk to me at the end. Or shoot me an email. This is a matter too important not to deal with it personally. But as we conclude today, allow me to remind you of the two things that God brings new in our lives at Christmas. He brings us a new dwelling of God. It's no longer a physical tabernacle. This time is God himself becoming man. He's in the new dwelling, and he makes us a new dwelling. And he brings us a new birth, not just the birth of Jesus. This is a beautiful part in the Gospel of John. Remember how I said at the beginning, in the Gospel of John, we do not see the writer ascribing the word birth to Jesus. The Gospel of John, when John talks about the birth, he talks about the new birth that we experience when we receive the God who became man. That's why, dear friends, I hope and trust that you will treasure and value what God brings us new at Christmas. But friend, let me make it very clear to you. When you make room for God in your life, you are not doing God a favor. You're doing yourself the greatest favor ever. Yes, when Christ moves into our hearts and lives, he, uh, he most likely will start taking control. That's what he does. He likes changing things around. And at first, you may not like it. Actually, you may not like it at all. And you may not like it for a long time. But that's what Christ does when he shows up into our lives. If anything, actually, this is one sure sign that he truly came into our lives if he does take control of our lives. Friend, if you think you have God in your life, but he does not control your life, you might be deceiving yourself. Because when God comes in, he starts cleaning up. He starts taking control. Yes, it may feel uncomfortable at first, but that's what he does. And that's why many people in the world have misunderstood Christ. They have misrecognized him or even rejected him because they do not want to submit to Christ. Yet, here's the other great news 
The second part of what Christ does at Christmas, not only does he take control of our lives, but he gives us a new birth, a new nature, so that now we start liking the changes that God makes in our lives. We actually start enjoying the fact that God is controlling us. We could not do that prior to the new birth. The nation of Israel was not able to do that. That's why what God does at Christmas is so much better. Not only does God bring a new dwelling, but he brings us a new birth so that we may start enjoying what God does in our lives. Friends, God is moving in with us. He not only wants to accompany us, he wants to change our nature. And if you're here today and you have not been born of God, it does not matter what labels you have. It does not matter what religion you have. It does not matter what background you have. It doesn't matter what denomination you have. At Christmas, God became man, and he wants us to be born of God. Have you misunderstood him? Have you misrecognized him? Have you rejected him? If you have done any of these, it is not too late for you to turn to God so that you too can be born of God. Let us pray. Almighty Father, we thank you that you are a God who delights in giving us new things. Lord, we recognize that some of us and all of us at some point may not like the things which you give us new. Some of us may still prefer the old stuff, the old toys, the old habits, the old life when we were in control. But Father, we do thank you by faith that you have come in Jesus Christ to bring us a new dwelling and a new birth. Father, we pray that we would rejoice in these. And Father, we pray that we would receive these with glad hearts. Father, we praise your name that in Jesus Christ you made a way, you made the only way for us to be born of you. Father, we praise you in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Dear friends, let's continue to worship the Lord. And I would like to invite my friend Samuel Chavria to come and lead us into a final word, final song of praise. <laughs>